Hey Magic Lantern listeners, there is no opening scene this time around, as this is our special year-end wrap-up of all of our favorite discoveries of 2018. Instead, we just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone for the great year that we've had. We appreciate everyone listening, sharing the show, supporting the Patreon. We appreciate it so much we can't even tell you. So happy holidays and happy new year to everyone listening, and we can't wait to bring you more great stuff in 2019. And now, on to our lists. What have you got? Highlander 2, The Quickening, ten times? I instead chose a 30-part series made into 900 parts, and I'll be discussing every film offshoot from that. Awesome. Let's go. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling, and welcome to episode 94. This is our special year-end wrap-up, Ants in Your Pants of 2018. For the new folks, why don't you tell them what that's all about? This is the time of year when we talk about new discoveries, those films that we watched for the first time this year whether it be a well-known classic or a lesser-known title. We each picked 10 films that were brand new to either of us, and as usual, we do have some crossover, some shared choices. Did you arrange your list in any particular way this year? I kept mine, just for the sake of expediency, by the order in which we saw them. Okay, I did mine in chronological order of original release this time around. Did any strange groupings or themes jump out at you when you started to put this together? What's your overview before we get started? What do you think of your list? I find it so funny that those odd themes do emerge. I don't even know how that happens. It doesn't seem like we planned that out when we chose these to watch, but it just happens. Now, you know my favorites tend to be in the noir category. And I did have a lot of those, they ended up falling off the list, and so surprisingly, at least for me this year, I've got a lot more drama, and then, even most surprisingly, I've got some animated choices. I think the big banner headline, though, was that this was a Bergman year for me. Very appropriate, being the 100th anniversary of his birth. Absolutely. And one of those big highlights, though it was a film I had already seen, we got to see in Oslo. So that was pretty darn cool. But I'm so glad that I'm finally getting around to filling in those huge gaps in my Bergman viewing. And of course, that's a very worthy pursuit and could pretty much take up the rest of my life. How about your list? Well, it's a little more narrow range of dates than I typically cover. I somehow zeroed in more on the 60s, 70s, and 80s this time, with only a couple of outliers in either direction. My geographical range is a little better, at least. I have titles from Norway, Canada, Spain, Japan, the Philippines, Taiwan, and Scotland in addition to the U.S. And there is some experimentalism, a little animation, although probably not as much as you, which is a surprise, some documentary, Drama on a scale that goes from very intimate to sweeping family epic, and then a couple of scathing black comedies to round things out. Now, my earliest choice ended up being from 1928, and my latest from 2016. And also, something out of the ordinary for me, I have no choices from the 30s or 40s. I actually have several from the 50s and 60s. So kind of an atypical list for both of us, it feels like. It seems like we maybe switched places a little bit this time around. 
I don't have anything approximating Thundercrack, though. <laughs> Who could? So how about I kick it off? Okay. My first film is The Passion of Joan of Arc from 1928, directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer with Maria Falconetti, Eugene Sylvain, and André Berlet. In 1431, Jeanne d'Arc, or Joan of Arc, is placed on trial on charges of heresy while the jurists try to force her to recant her claims of holy visions. Now, we got to see this on the big screen with an accompanying score. This is not something that you usually get as excited about as I do. You're not as big into exhibition as I am. But do you think it added to the experience in this case? I do. Now, Dreyer himself did not pick a definitive score. And so because this was the first time for me seeing it, I didn't really have anything to compare it to. Do you remember having any impressions of the score from that viewing? To clarify, we saw the one that was the alternate news score that was composed by Adrian Utley and Will Gregory. Austin Film Society actually offered both, and since I had seen the other one and you didn't seem to have a preference either way, we went for the new one, and I thought it was fantastic. The music was incredibly appropriate. Often it is such a roll of the dice with contemporary composers trying to do something like that for a much older silent film. It either feels mannered, like it's trying too hard to capture that particular time and place or like there was no unifying theme and it's so avant that it just makes no sense with anything no context whatsoever but this i thought worked really well i remember really enjoying it as well and then just in general my memories are of that stricken face seen from so many angles tears streaming and at the same time even though joan of arc is being tortured as we watch I don't really side with anyone in the film. No one is particularly a hero. You have to qualify, I think, that we're both coming at this from a very secular point of view. I'm not into religious zealotry generally. <laughs> but I would say, I think in her favor, she edges out the priests just a bit. I'm rooting for her a little bit more. Well, my one distinct memory is being furious, like I am every time I watch it, because of the craven cowardice of these men that have put her on trial. I may not be a huge fan of the mystic seer, but I am definitely never going to be in the camp of the hypocritical, lying, manipulative authority figure. What's insane for me to think about is that after completing the original cut of the film, the entire master print was destroyed, and so Dreyer couldn't reshoot, so he had to basically re-edit the whole film from footage that he had first rejected. My guess is, all of that footage was primarily Maria Falconetti forced to cry for an eternity while kneeling on stone steps for hours and days. Well, you're starting off with a heavy hitter. That is a big milestone of international cinema. Mine is not that big a deal. Mine is international. It's just not one of those milestone films, though it is highly regarded in its country of origin. And my first choice is Lake of the Dead from 1958, directed by Kari Bergstrom and starring Henke Kolstad, Björk Eng, and Andre Bjerka, who also wrote the novel on which it's based. It's about a group of friends that travel to a lakeside cabin in the Norwegian woods where a deadly phantom stalks the shore. Now you just referred to this briefly, and we talked a little bit about this one on our Patreon episode about our trip to Oslo, and we showed this in anticipation of that trip as part of the screening series that we host, and I really had a good time. It was a blast, I thought. 
And like I said, it's one of the most highly regarded Norwegian films of all time. Norwegian critics place this in the top five Norwegian films ever, and quite possibly their oldest horror classic. It's a very effective little chiller, I thought, and I would classify it as more of a mystery than a horror film, actually. In its favor, unlike most Cabin in the Woods films that you might be used to, the players here are grown adults, and they're not kids being used for body count cannon fodder, so there's a bit more gravity to it. There's some beautiful imagery that draws on influences as varied as the hands of Orlac to I Walked with a Zombie to Norwegian Folktales, and there's one really great scare in it of the I expected something, but I didn't expect that variety that literally made me jump, which does not happen that often. Now, this was the first time for you, too, right? It didn't make your list, but I thought you enjoyed it quite a bit. Is that correct? I did. I thought it was great fun, and it looks amazing. Any moment by the lake is a real highlight. And at movie night, everybody loved it, too. So big recommendation here. It's a tidy and atmospheric 76 minutes. So even if you don't like it, you haven't spent a lot of time on it. But there really isn't much fat on it. And it treats the spectral conundrum at its heart with appropriately Scandinavian reason instead of useless hand-wringing and bad decisions. I can't wait until we move to our own Norwegian cabin, even if it has peg-leg ghosts. Now, how about we turn from Norwegian sanity to American insanity with The Brotherhood of Satan from 1971, directed by Bernard McKevity with Struther Martin, L.Q. Jones, Charles Bateman, and Anna Copri, who you may remember from Darker Than Amber. A family is trapped in a desert town by a cult of senior citizens who recruit the town's children to worship Satan. Now, this was also written by L.Q. Jones, who was someone not familiar to me, but he seemed like an old friend to you. Oh, yeah. Anyone who knows cowboy movies, stuntman movies or is just an appreciator of craggy, rugged character actor faces, you definitely know who L.Q. Jones is, even if you don't know L.Q. Jones. I now think about this film every time, and it seems like there are a few times that we're doing this, driving from the 183 and 281 corridor, and we get stuck in it every time and can't seem to find our way out, and I assume that this movie will just start unfolding. I really enjoyed it. I think it completely captures that sense of disbelief that you would face as a situation just starts to unfold too quickly for you to catch up. And I like that it focuses on the people, you know, those first responders who would be called upon in this kind of situation to do something. But the brotherhood is just too much for them. And I especially like the theme of seniors being pure evil. The oldies are definitely not goodies. Now, did you know when this film was released that theater goers were given a packet of Satan's soul seeds? Uh, it does not surprise me, but no, I had not heard that. The packet had the movie's logo on it and two seeds inside, which were supposed to protect you from the black magic of the Brotherhood of Satan. Please say you went on eBay and got me some of these for Christmas. Don't ruin the surprise. Okay. So thank you so much for showing me this. This was amazing fun, and I hope that more people get to see it. Well, speaking of someone showing us something, this is my first item on the list that one of our listeners pointed me to, and that is Very Nice, Very Nice from 1961. And this is an experimental short by Arthur Lipset, whose work I discovered thanks to our friend R.J. Tugas. 
Arthur Lipset was an interesting, troubled guy. He only made 14 shorts before he took his own life at age 49, after having witnessed his mother do the same thing when he was only 10. But his work was very influential, even though the body of work is relatively small. Stanley Kubrick was an admirer of his, as was George Lucas. And this film is fairly indicative of his style, and it was the first one to bring him accolades, being nominated for an Academy Award in 1962. It's essentially a collage of found sounds and photographs that are cleverly edited to tap into every single anxiety about modern society in a short seven minutes. There are images of wrestlers, beauty queens, parades, parade goers, nuclear tests, the average man and woman on the street. All of those and then some are juxtaposed with snippets of speeches, advertisements, and conversations in a way that plays on our fixations and apprehensions. In case I make it sound too grim, and there are those doomsday elements of it, there's definitely a sense of humor and playfulness about it. He certainly had a specific editorial intent, though, so you might say it was gallows humor. If your idea of a fun time is a commentary on the cruel joke that we're all playing on ourselves, then you and Arthur Lipset probably have the same sense of humor. Now, this one did not work for you the same way it did for me, right? I think the problem is my own. I think I'm used to seeing everything that it influenced and came afterwards, so it dims a little by essentially being the first. I can see that. If you've consumed everything that then came in its wake, it's hard to imagine sometimes the initial impact that it might have had. I find his work pretty fascinating, though, and you may like it if, like me, you like the time capsule element of old footage giving you a window into bygone places and times. You can see seven of his films as of this recording, including this one and my other favorite that's called A Trip Down Memory Lane, in addition to a documentary about him on the website of the National Film Board of Canada at nfb.ca. That website is a treasure trove, and not the last time it'll be mentioned on this episode. Where has this website been all my life? It is amazing. I think it's possibly the greatest recommendation that could come out of this entire episode. Yeah, I know that we're all still reeling from the loss of Filmstruck and then immediately after that Fandor, but if you are looking for an interesting repository of films that may be more approachable, accessible, I'm not sure if that's the right word exactly, than say the Library of Congress holdings that are snippets and fragments a lot of the time of films that are basically lost otherwise, the National Film Board of Canada website it is entire films and its features, shorts, animation, documentary. There are all sorts of things on it. A lot of them award-winning and significant to film culture worldwide. I'm not saying it will replace those services that we lost by any estimation. But if in the meantime, until the Criterion Channel gets up and running, if you are looking for somewhere to go, check out the National Film Board of Canada. My next choice is another international favorite, and this is something that, again, you brought to me through one of our movie nights, and that is The Fabulous Baron Munchausen from 1962, directed by Carol Zeman with Milos Kopecki, Rudolf Jelinek, and Jana Breshkova. The Fabulous Baron Munchausen tells of his many adventures from meeting the man in the moon to defeating a Turkish army all by himself. Now, this is nothing short of a spectacular visual feast. A mixture of live action and animation and other technical effects to create a singular world. It's just a mastery of design and the realization of a vision. 
And I remember it wowed at movie night as well. Now, coming into this, were you a fan of, say, Terry Gilliam's animation style? I am not in any way, shape, or form. Okay. Even though you're a Monty Python fan. Yes. And I didn't enjoy his version of Baron Munchausen Mm. either. Though I could definitely stand to come back to it. I was much younger at the time. But I do like this version of that story. I like the angle that Baron Munchausen is essentially on the downward slope of his life. And even as outrageous as he is, and how it would be in his favor to not tell the truth, he still can't get the girl when there's a man more suited to her than he is. And I believe you mentioned to me a couple of days ago, you're looking for another of the titles from this director. I just ordered it yesterday, as a matter of fact. I'm super excited about this one. It's a Jules Verne adaptation called Invention for Destruction, which is supposed to be even better than this. So if that pans out, I would say look for that on our 2019 Ants in Your Pants episode, because it promises to be pretty spectacular. And if we liked this, then we're going to love that, I would guess. I can't wait to watch that. Now, I believe the next choice is one of our shared selections. It's our only shared selection, as a matter of fact, this time around. We usually have more than this. And it's from the year immediately following the one you just cited. This is The Executioner from 1963, directed by Luis Garcia Berlanga and starring Nino Manfredi, Emma Panea, and Jose Isbear. It's about an undertaker who marries an executioner's daughter and must take up the family business when the old man retires. Now, I both like and don't like the fact that this is our only joint choice. I like the variety, but... It seems to me that it suggests maybe we didn't watch as many things together this year, which I definitely don't enjoy. That always disappoints me a little. I think we're going to end up having more shared choices in our honorable mentions. Well, I'm glad at least that we got to see this one together. This is so slyly subversive and funny. Just as one small example, there's a shot in the very beginning, the framing of which seems to suggest that one third of the Holy Trinity is the toilet. Blink and you'd miss it, but the suggestion is there. It's truly amazing to see how much Berlanga got away with during Franco's actual reign. Commentary on capital punishment, the civil service system, the church, religion itself. It just seems that he was so much smarter than the censors ever could be. Very true. He jabs at and undermines social conventions all throughout this thing until we finally get to that brilliant final sequence in which the new executioner's reaction to his job is a mirror of what a condemned man might endure in his final moments, and he faces it with considerably less dignity than the actual prisoner does. He's got to be comforted, cajoled, and finally carried to complete his duty, and we are all faced with what he's been brought there to do, and at least at that moment, The comedy that we felt throughout, it falls away, and it's just horror that lives on in that courtyard. Special mention has to go to Jose Isbear, the grand old man of Spanish cinema. 116 credits to his name. He is a riot. He practically steals the whole show in a way that only a seasoned performer can. He is the most bon vivant of all executioners, everyone's friend, especially the dying man. Now, I mentioned gallows humor with Arthur Lipset. This is quite literally that, a dictionary definition of that. 
and one of the finest examples of it that I have seen in a long time. My next one, though, is one of those that we didn't get the chance to see together, and this is one that I might want to do an entire episode about, so you will get the opportunity sooner rather than later. And that is A Man Vanishes from 1967, and that's directed by Shohei Imamura and starring Yoshi Hayakawa and Shigeru Suyaguchi, as well as Imamura himself. And it's about a plastic salesman who has, like a number of his countrymen, gone missing without a trace. After two years gone, Imamura and his crew begin what is ostensibly a documentary investigating his disappearance. From there, it begins to become a lot more mercurial. His co-workers and family, including an abandoned fiancé, they're questioned, and then things get extremely meta. I've got a question here, and I hope it's not a dumb one. Okay, let's hear it. We'll figure it out. I couldn't quite tell from your description, and since I haven't seen it yet, is this a purely narrative film, or is this a documentary? This is actually a piece of fiction that is made to look like a documentary. It's very much a through-the-looking-glass kind of experience. It uses this simple missing persons case as its springboard, but then it just gets into all sorts of questions on the nature of truth, identity, and even what is real, as it's filtered through people recounting stories about this man, and then the film crew's interpretation of those stories. What I'm left with, at least in the viewing that I had, the one time I've watched it, I haven't watched it again, I anticipate it will yield a lot more the second time around, I'm left thinking about how impossible it is to pull together a full picture of a person. Everyone, including that person in question, only has a sliver of the whole. That's basically how close we all are to disappearing already. So watching this film fold back in on itself and then amplify its own questions by virtue of its structure is really something to watch. How valuable can information be if it brings you no closer to any discernible truth is basically the big question. It's like an exquisite little puzzle box that only becomes more confounding with each new thing you learn about it. Were you familiar with this director already as well? Oh, definitely. But of everything I've seen, this is his most self-reflexive, self-referential, like I said, meta. The films I've seen prior to this, while some of them are definite puzzlers, are much more straightforward narratives than this funhouse mirror of a documentary. We're nearing the halfway point now. What do you have next? I have a director that's a favorite for us both, and my first French choice. And that is The Man in the Raincoat, or L'Homme la Permeable, from 1957, directed by Julien Duvivier, with Fernandel, Jacques Duby, Jean Rigaud, and Judith Magre. Now this is late period Duvivier for you, for us. I think he's becoming a real fast favorite of yours now that I think about it. Maybe more of yours than even mine, and I really love all the stuff I've seen, Pepe Lamoco especially. He hits all my spots. He ticks all my boxes. Now, the man in the raincoat in this film is a clarinet player, and in the absence of his wife, he's induced by a friend of his to go meet with a call girl, and in so doing becomes the only suspect in a major crime, and so he's got to clear his name before his wife returns home. There's a lot of excellent physical comedy here, as you would expect from someone like Fernandel, who is an absolute high point. He had an incredibly long career, beginning in 1930. Basically, he was a French national treasure. He was a comedian, a singer, extremely popular. 
There's enough of a bite here, though, to ensure that this is Julien de Vivier. So if you're looking for something like Monsieur Hulot meets Maigret, this might be great for you. Fernandel is the heart and soul of this, and I completely understand why he was such a beloved national figure. This is the one choice on your list that I don't feel completely in sync with. I only watched it the one time. Everything else on your list I know very well, I think. And so it encourages me to go back and watch this one again, because like I said, I'm a de Vivier fan as well. And if you hold it in that high regard, it makes me think maybe I missed something. Was I, what was I doing when we were watching this? I'm pretty sure you were there. I remember you really liking it. I think the difference is most of my other choices were actually directly from you uh, bringing them to me. <laughs> makes sense. And we came to this one together, essentially. Well, the next one on my list is the one that you did that for me. And that's The Hospital from 1971. And that's directed by Arthur Hiller. And it stars George C. Scott, Diana Rigg, and Bernard Hughes. It was written by Patty Chevsky, who also narrated it and produced it. He essentially had a final cut on the thing as well. This is the most Patty Chayefsky movie because he had the most creative control on this one, which is something that I quite enjoy. I like his voice when it's at its most unfiltered, especially when George C. Scott is doing the bellowing as his mouthpiece. And the film is about an overburdened doctor whose professional and personal life is falling apart while a murderer stalks the halls of his hospital. This one preceded Network, Chayefsky's most notable film, I would say, by about five years, and I think this is actually the superior movie. We got to see this one in the theater, too, and so this one was a big treat for me, and like I said, it's one that I came to via you, so I owe you a big thank you. Oh, by the way, you're welcome. <laughs> You've been trying to get me to watch this for a few years now, and you were definitely not wrong. It was right up my alley. I got to see it for the first time on TV years ago, and it stayed with me vividly since then. And like you said, I had been just begging and badgering you to get to this, and I'm so glad that we got to see it on the big screen. Where the executioner is slyly funny, this is just a pummeling. Absurdity is piled on top of fatal absurdity until the entirety of the healthcare system and George C. Scott's mental stability are both poised to come tumbling down like a house of cards. He alternately rages and despairs. He upbraids hospital staff and berates himself. He falls in love and then gives up on life. It's a real roller coaster, but it's always funny and definitely always biting. And Chayefsky has that singular way of making a lot of things that aren't funny pretty hilarious. Okay, now I'm about to bring the room down a bit. Okay. And that is with My Life as a Zucchini, or Ma Vie de Courgette. It's from 2016, directed by Claude Berhard, and with the English voices of Eric Abat, Romy Beckman, Ness Krell, and Nick Offerman. After losing his mother, a young boy is sent to a foster home with other orphans his age, where he begins to learn the meaning of trust and true love. Now, I had been avoiding this one for a long time because I assumed it would make me cry, and of course it did, but it is so full of joy and love at the same time. It's a wonderful example of the foster care system that reflects more of the people that I see working in it, like my friends at Casa of Central Texas. They are in it for the love of children, 
And this doesn't shy away, though, from how deeply sad the entire experience still is, and that not every child gets a home. So unless you're a complete monster, you will love every single child and feel their backstories. You will understand each of them. Plus, we get to know the adults. And with some notable exceptions, they offer love and support and understanding. And I think it's a reflection of how we hope the system works. I'm not going to bear the full brunt of upsetting you with this one. That rests squarely on the shoulders of the fine gentlemen at FUDS on Film. They were the first ones to point me toward this, and we owe them a big thank you. It is animated. I didn't mention that before, I just realized. And it's really fine, incredible, beautiful artwork. The voice work here is also stellar, so I absolutely just devotedly loved this. Well, I will see your foster care system and raise you sex trafficking with my next choice, and that is Manila in the Claws of Light from 1975. That is directed by Lino Bracca, and it stars Bimble Rocco, Hilda Coronel, Lou Salvador Jr., Tommy Abuel, and Tommy Yap. In this one, a young provincial fisherman travels to Manila to seek out a loved one whom it turns out is a victim of sex trafficking. The reputation of this one certainly preceded it, as it's one of the landmark films of Filipino cinema, and I've been waiting to see it for a long time, and it did not disappoint. It is a powder keg of working class, or even sub-working class, frustration and helplessness. Watching this young man, Julio, get a crash course in the indignities of life in the big city is an education that you just never hope to receive. The cast itself, were these really experienced actors or relative newcomers? They were definitely not experienced actors, but it is one of those great things that I love, the effectiveness of well-directed non-professionals. Lino Bracca, he makes Manila feel like the most corrupt and predatory place I have ever seen. It's a place where it's hard to hang on to your humanity. Your choices are to become as hardened as everyone else, to make sure you can carve out your meager existence resort to violence, exploitation, or other criminality, or just give up. And so even though he's not the most experienced actor in the world, you really do see our protagonist gradually having everything he once held to be true stripped away from him the moment he hits town. It's a good thing that he's on a holy quest of sorts, because I really don't know otherwise what would sustain him. It really is a stunning film. I think most significantly so in how Braca treats the underclass that are left with scraps that society has thrown them. I was amazed again and again by the unprejudiced eye with which he looked at those people and specifically the matter-of-fact way he treated their fluid sexuality in some cases. I was really afraid going into this that since it was the mid-70s and in the Philippines that it might reflect a pretty repressive atmosphere. And while it generally does, that's only because an entire class is being exploited not because they're call boys, for instance. Braca presents their situation straightforwardly and with no judgment whatsoever. It's pretty remarkable and forward-thinking in that regard. So it's got as much thoughtful nuance as it does explosive melodrama. I really highly recommend this one. I'm just sorry you didn't get to see it. Especially in the theater as well, but I'll make up for it as soon as we get our copy. Way ahead of you. Look to your left on the shelf right there. Well, good. That'll be, I don't know, Christmas viewing? <laughs> Perfect. Now, I'm about to bring the room down again, even lower than sex trafficking. What's in the sub-basement below that? Uh, that would be my first Bergman. 
sublime sub-basement. Yes, and that is Cries and Whispers from 1972, directed by Ingmar Bergman, with Harriet Anderson, Liv Ullmann, Ingrid Tulin, and Kari Silwan. When a woman dying of cancer in early 20th century Sweden is visited by her two sisters, long-repressed feelings between the siblings rise to the surface. I'm so glad that I got to see this on the big screen at Austin Film Society. How about those deep crimson hues? Weren't those amazing on the big screen? I will get there in just a second. First, I am so glad that Lars Nielsen, programmer, told us in advance that everything was going to be okay. It didn't stop me from sweating through the entire film. Oddly enough, I remember less the color than the pain. It is such a sweet, abject misery that permeates this thing. There's Agnes's pain, Karin's self-mutilation, Maria's withdrawal. I felt all of those things. Now, to the red. Ingmar Bergman said that this is an exploration of the soul, and ever since childhood, I have imagined the soul to be a damp membrane in varying shades of red. And he essentially had a dream of this. He dreamt of four women in red in a room whispering to each other. I've been to parties like that before. (laughs) Well, we'll have to check out Sven Nykvist's book. I wonder if he talks about this because he mentioned how difficult red is to capture. Well, he did an amazing job. If it's difficult, then give him an A plus because it is infinitely red. I remember... Leave Uman's incredibly sexy red dress. By the way, last fun fact for you. The Magic Lantern show that they're watching is Hansel and Gretel. Well, okay, I'm going to bring us back up then. How about that? My next choice is a film called You Got to Move from 1985. And I realize from here out, I think you've only seen one more of my choices, sadly. This was directed by Lucy Massey Phoenix and Veronica Selver. And it's a documentary that follows people from a number of communities across the South, and how they came to be involved in social change. A lot of it involves a really important place, the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee. And that institution started in the Great Depression, teaching adult education, conservation, and leadership classes that were geared toward helping the labor movement, and then after that, the civil rights movement. So the Highlander School has been at the forefront of progressive issues in the South for almost a century now. They're still in operation. These days, they focus a lot on democratic participation, LGBTQ issues, and immigration. This was one of two films on my list this year that was a balm for me. It did two important things. It taught me a great deal about a place that everyone interested in United States history should know about, which I was completely ignorant of. Have you heard of the Highlander School before I just mentioned it? No, I am sadly ignorant of it. Yeah, I was too. And so, again, I highly recommend this for you and everybody. And two, and maybe more importantly, it reminded me that there are always people fighting the good fight in places that it can be awfully tough or intimidating to try to walk that walk. The Highlander taught people everything from how to read to how to grow food to how to be the best catalyst for social change that they could be. And then those people were able to take those lessons back to their own communities and amplify them and pass them on. It's incredibly valuable work that they were and are doing, and so, yeah, I'd say watch this one right away if you'd like to feel better 
about the state of the world that we live in right now. I'm not going to bring us down anymore, even though my next selection definitely has darkness in it. And I chose Life is Sweet from 1990, directed by Mike Lee, with Allison Steadman, Jim Broadbent, Timothy Spall, Claire Skinner, and Jane Horrocks. <laughs> Just laugh thinking both about Jane Horrocks as Bubble and Timothy Spall in this. He is amazingly funny. Did you want liver and lager, pork cyst, <laughs> clams and ham with pan-fried cockbay sauce, or prune quiche, for example? Prune quiche sounds like dessert. This film follows a family, a husband and wife and their twin daughters, over the course of a few weeks. As is his usual practice, the script was developed by Mike Lee and the cast, collectively improvising and rehearsing for several weeks prior to shooting. And how wonderful is it to build a story that doesn't fill in all the blanks for us, but is also not frustratingly opaque. I mentioned some of those recipes. That's Timothy Spall as Aubrey, the wannabe chef. He and Mike Lee devised those and then checked with a professional chef to see which ones were technically impossible to prepare. And if they weren't, if you could actually do it, they were all feasible, but incredibly gross. <laughs> <laughs> Just like within my previous selection, I really keenly felt all of the characters' hopes and dreams. We talked about Jane Horrocks, and she's Nicola here. She still doesn't take center stage over Andy, for example, or Aubrey. Each character is treated with care. And overall here, love and hopes and dreams and those disappointments are the central motifs. Well, we are both big Mike Lee fans. Your first choice of the new year, in fact, is going to be a Mike Lee film. And one of these days, we are going to get to one of my favorite Mike Lee films of all time, Naked. But yes, the thing that you point out about this collaborative process, that is my favorite thing about the way he works. I love the idea of this and how it puts such a unique and indelible stamp upon each production, just depending on the alchemy of those players. I have never been disappointed by a Mike Lee film, and I hope I never am. Naked came out of this to a certain extent because David Thewlis, who is also in this film, was a bit disappointed that he had a smaller part. And so Mike Lee said, I'm going to make something that's way more for you. Oh, it's a piece of genius. I am so glad he did. It is a defining film of my young adulthood. Well, shifting all the way from the UK to Taiwan, next we have A City of Sadness from 1989. And I can't promise that I am not going to keep bringing us down, at least not until the end. Eh, maybe this is my last sort of melancholy to tragic one. This was directed by Hu Shen, and it stars Tony Leung Chu Wai, Chin Sung Young, Jack Cao, and Li Tian Lu. And it is a sprawling epic that follows the triumphs and mostly tragedies, in case you didn't guess that from the title, of the Lin family surrounding the February 28 incident and the resulting fallout in Taiwan. This was just astounding. It was my single most anticipated experience of the year, and hands down the best and probably most important time I had in the theater. I'm assuming you're using the word important in a specific meaning. I'm using it in a way that I hope indicates that this film does everything that's great about cinema. It makes you feel, it makes you think, it transports you, it conjures up a complete universe 
that even though is in the midst of complete turmoil that you don't want to leave, that when the lights come up, it's such a shock and disappointment because you just want to know more of this story. The film itself just rings you out. You think about the greatest multi-generational family sagas that you know of in cinema, The Godfather, The Leopard, The Best of Youth, A Brighter Summer Day. This belongs up there with the very best of those. And it's incredible how well you feel you know these people and their struggles. One of the great benefits of this screening was that there was a post-film discussion with Peggy Chow, a producer, scholar, and writer who is known as the godmother of new Taiwan cinema, and Madeline Chu, who is an author and the director of the Center for Asian American Studies here at the University of Texas. So between the two of these women, we were treated to everything from a lot of history that helpfully contextualized what we just saw, because I know nothing prior to this, of the February 28th incident and the white terror that followed, to reminiscences about working directly with Hu Xiaoxin and all kinds of stuff in between. Just one more reason that I will go to bat for the Austin Film Society every day of the week. They bring us so many great programs like this that allow me to not only see something I have been wanting to see for literally years, but that allow me to leave the theater with a much greater understanding of that work, the world, myself. So support your local film society and pay whatever insane out-of-print price you have to to get a copy of this because it's worth every penny. I said I wasn't going to bring us down anymore. <laughs> Did you just realize you are? No, but there's a little bit of a caveat, and that is my next choice of Smiles of a Summer Night from 1955, directed by Ingmar Bergman. Well, I can't wait to hear what this caveat is, because this is one of the funniest, most effervescent movies ever committed to film. Absolutely. And despite the comedic tone, <laughs> though, Ingmar Bergman said that this was during the most depressed period of his mm. life. And if he had not made this film, he would have attempted suicide. Whoa. Yes. Well, doubly glad for it in that case, then. It is beautiful. And it also stars Ula Jakobsen, Ava Dahlbeck, Gunnar Bjornstrand, and Harriet Anderson. In Sweden, at the turn of the century, members of the upper class and their servants find themselves in a romantic tangle. I've been to parties like that. <laughs> well, speaking of, like I say, with a lot of my choices throughout the year, I didn't know this was going to be so funny and so earthy, as you mentioned. I didn't realize it would feel so immediate, like I could practically touch it. It's just a joy. It's inspired by A Midsummer Night's Dream, and it certainly captures those heady moments in the middle of a summer night, when clothes are lighter and there are less of them, voices are quieter and you want to snuggle in closer. It's a hell of a lot of fun, it looks gorgeous, and it put a gigantic smile on my face. Another great opportunity that we got from Austin Film Society, so one more cheer for them. Well, my next to last choice moves me all the way up into the 21st century, finally. And that was Madame Tootley Putley from 2007. And that was directed by the team of Chris Lavis and Maciek Scherbowski, who worked together under the name Clyde Henry Productions. It's a stop-motion animation short about a mysterious young woman on an even more mysterious train trip. This is another film that is produced under the auspices of and is available via the National Film Board of Canada. This is one that you watched with me. What did you think of this one? 
so wonderful. I could watch it hour after hour after hour. I wish it were a feature. I wish there were a hundred more iterations of it. I can't wait to watch more from this team. It combines the meticulous production design of someone like Wes Anderson with the moodiness and inscrutability of a David Lynch. The central metaphor of the story itself isn't particularly complicated. A woman with a lifetime of literal baggage is on a journey of transformation, but I do really like the fact that the symbol of that transformation, the moth, isn't just attracted to any source of illumination. That source of illumination is the light from an oncoming train. So it raises the stakes a little. The presentation, though, is what is really remarkable here. They use this technique where they superimpose the actual eyes of human actors seamlessly onto the puppets. So that the eyes feel alive. They feel watery or dry or red. The amount of expression that it adds makes an immense difference. And I was not prepared for what a huge difference it was. That whole thing about the eyes are the window to the soul. Eh, it turns out it's true after all. These eyes just seem to get wider and wider as more odd and sinister things happen in the middle of the night on this train. And as our protagonist navigates these mounting dangers, all of these train cars, and her own evolution. I immediately, like you, wanted to see more from these guys. Fortunately, there are a small handful of her films on the National Film Board website. The problem for collectors is that their films are spread out among various animation showcases, one film in each collection, but there is no set that is exclusively their work. If there was, I would buy one in a heartbeat. This film immediately put them among my favorite animators, right up there with the brothers Quay, Yuri Norstein, and Yuri Barta. What are you going to bring us home with? Literally, I saved pure Texas joy for last. By the way, did I tell you I wrote Billie Jean? Were you also best friends with Pat Benatar? I was. I'm referring to True Stories from 1986, directed by David Byrne, with David Byrne, John Goodman, Annie McEnroe, Joe Harvey Allen, Spalding Gray, Pop Staples, and Swoozy Kurtz. A small but growing Texas town filled with strange and musical characters celebrates its sesquicentennial and converge on a local parade and talent show. It was written by David Byrne, with Stephen Tobolowsky and Beth Henley, whom I know more from the theater. And I would love you to talk about the development of it, because you've heard more of this story. I get this story straight from Tobolowsky in his wonderful podcast, The Stephen Tobolowsky Files. And he talks about when the two of them, he and Beth Henley, were out for their evening constitutional. Jonathan Demme just happens to drive by and say, hey, would you like to come over to the house and check out this film I'm working on? Turns out that film has stopped making sense, and in his personal theater, in his expansive home, this gathering is Tobolowski, Henley, Demi, and it turns out the talking heads are there waiting as well. And so they all watch it together, and from that seed germinates his relationship with David Byrne and the development of this film, which took a long time to come to fruition, but man, I am glad it did. This is one of my favorite releases of this year, one of my favorite movies of all time. Now, I've been aware of this film since it came out. I was 11 years old, so it feels like practically my whole life. And I've probably seen the video for Wild Wild Life 200 times, but I just hadn't yet gotten to it. I'm so glad I did. It's incredibly sweet and lovable. 
I want to be really clear here for people who haven't seen it, who might have been on the fence about it. It doesn't feel snarky or precious to me. I think that's in part why I hadn't gotten to it. I was afraid that it would feel like that. Well, it did somewhat unfairly, I think, have a little bit of that reputation. Upon its initial release, there were those in the film critic community that dismissed it as dismissive of the people that it was about. Now, David Byrne does talk about how this was directly inspired by tabloid stories. And yet these people are also really relatable and just fun. I feel like that they're in on it and I glory in the fun in their lives. It's not going to be a surprise that the music is a revelation in it, especially an unforgettable moment like Lewis singing People Like Us. Yeah, we talk a lot about irony and how we often don't like it. This is so honest and affectionate, a portrait of these people, that even thinking about it just makes me want to go watch it right now. Maybe it's because David Byrne is a super big weirdo himself. <laughs> Probably. He has an affinity for them. Absolutely. He's one of them. So I'm definitely not ranking these, but this was an incredible joy. I mentioned that for a lot of these choices. This also, like you just mentioned, is one that I would put on right now. Well, my final choice left me feeling similarly contented, but is definitely leagues apart from the true stories experience. And my final choice is Two Years at Sea from 2011, and that's directed by Ben Rivers and starring Jake Williams, who was in one of Rivers' previous short films. It is also a meta-documentary somewhat. It's ostensibly about the life and daily routines of a man living off the grid in the Scottish Highlands. There were a lot of things like A City of Sadness that I had anticipated a lot, that I had wanted to see this year, but this was the thing I needed to see this year. I mentioned that You Got to Move was like a balm because it reassured me that there were always people willing to connect in meaningful, restorative ways. This was the epitome of something I think I need even more, and that is solitude and isolation. It's all fog, snow, rain, and quiet. We follow Jake around as he works, sleeps, showers, and dreams with no phone ringing, no computer, no one that he owes anything to. I definitely think that calling it a documentary is a little misleading. I think of it as more a work of fiction for a couple of important reasons. One, there's an episode when he is napping in a caravan in which the caravan floats up into the treetops and stays there for the rest of the film. It definitely crosses over into the realm of at least magical realism at that moment. The other larger reason I would classify it as fiction is just that it's so idealized. The way I describe this existence as so perfect, I do that not just because it speaks to me, but because that's how it's presented for everyone. And I hope I don't make it sound too ponderous, because it's not. It is very quietly joyful. He's calm, he's contented, and the film definitely has a sense of humor. But that sense of humor is definitely in the art house realm, though, so don't go into this thinking you're going to get a laugh riot. There's no human sounds except the noises of honest toil and some whistling for an hour and a half. And it is shot on 16mm that seems to be occasionally disintegrating literally as it moves through the camera. I could talk a long, long time about this one, and maybe we'll do a full episode about it one day. But for now, this isn't on my list because I think it will appeal to everyone. This is the one film on the list that I feel like was made especially for me. I can't wait to watch this one either. Now, do I get my opportunity to cheat? 
You've done really well holding back so far, not squeezing in box sets and serials and sequels and prequels. Great. So I'll get to my honorable mentions okay, then. Let's have them. I've got The Smiling Lieutenant, La Vie de Bohème, Blast of Silence, Casa de Lava, which I know is on your list as well, Woman on the Run, Deluge, and Quai des Orfèvres. You know what an incredible year it is when that is your list of honorable mentions, when those are the ones that didn't quite make the cut? That's a solid 10 for any year. I do have a regret, though. What's that? We're going to be talking about it a little bit more in the first Patreon episode of the new year. But ultimately, I regret, in my list at least, that it seems like it's predominantly Western European, North American, and white. So here's to doing better in 2019. Well, my honorable mentions share a couple that you have. Casa de Lava, definitely. The Smiling Lieutenant, that was so much fun to see on the big screen. Scandal Sheet, which probably didn't make the cut for this show because we talked about it in one of our Patreon episodes. More Noir with The Man Who Cheated Himself. Cure. Pas de Deux. A Norman McLaren film, which is also another great National Film Board of Canada find. American Boy, a profile of Stephen Prince, and The Other Side of the Wind, which I would technically count as more of a new release than a discovery, even though it's an older film. And I think I come down feeling a little like you, actually, now that you say that. I feel like I let myself down a little. My list feels a little safe for reasons I can't even exactly put a finger on. I guess maybe it just feels like I didn't work hard enough for some of it, like I could have pushed my boundaries some more, but didn't as much as I might have liked to. I feel a little like I should have sought more things out to actively wrestle with. And I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure. I just have never watched movies for comfort, and I don't want to start doing that now. It's just not my style. I covered a fair amount of geographical ground. I like that. That's good. So maybe I've just reached a saturation point in terms of how many weird, hard-to-find, obscure super challenging films are out there left for me to reel in. I don't want to quit looking, though. I still hope next year when I make this list, I have found some new places to go. It reminds me of something John Waters said. Okay. <laughs> Respectability, the final outrage. Exactly. Is that sort of what you were feeling, though? Does that sum it up, or is yours a little different? Mine's always going to be different. I push myself less than you, but I still need to push myself more. I'm really glad at the choices that we made for the main show and what we're looking at for the rest of 2019, but there are just more corners to explore. Okay, well, how about we do a lot of that next year? For now, though, that brings us to the end of episode 94. First and foremost, we want to say a special thank you to Jacqueline Gennaris for becoming our newest Patreon supporter. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to make a New Year's resolution to support that, we would certainly love it if you checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. There are all sorts of perks available, bonus content, enamel pins. We'll do commentary tracks for you at certain levels. If you're a super high roller, you can even program the show, so check it out. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, 
our friend Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Femmes podcast, Jason Beamish, Terry and Liz at Happily Cinema Married, Rod Penaflor, Jane Sankner, Fred Smith, Travis Trudell, Matt Gastire, Shelley Sampon, Dean Estes, Tim Lego, Spencer Seams, Dice K. Beppu, and Scott Morris and the other fine gentlemen of Fuds on Film. If you're sharing the show or talking about it, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us there. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Podcast.